Hello and welcome to the Swim Brief. I am Chris DeSantis and today, as teased in my previous podcast, I am joined by USA Swimming data scientist Corey Manley. Did I get your title right, Corey? I didn't check before we started recording this. Yeah, you nailed it. That's perfect. Thanks, Chris. Good. Nailed it. Well, listen, uh, well, we're going to talk about this uh, analysis that you produced on, on Club Excellence for USA Swimming, because I think it's uh, like, I'm, I'm really excited that something like this has been made, and I'm really excited to get into the weeds with you a little bit on it. Um, and uh, I, I want to thank you for being willing to talk on that. But anybody I bring on the podcast, like I think it's just important for people to have an idea of who is it they're talking to. So I wonder if you could give us a little bit of your own background in the sport of swimming um, and then walk us up to uh, taking this job with USA Swimming. Totally. Yeah, Chris, thanks for having me on. Super excited to be here and, and glad that you took an interest in the article. Love to talk about this kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, like you mentioned, a quick background on me. Grew up swimming uh, back in Delaware. So middle Claymont, Delaware, the, one of the hometowns of Joe Biden, right? <laughs> that is correct. Same high school as Joe Biden. So fun okay. there. Yep. That's cool. a little tidbit on how small Delaware is, right? So um from there, went and swam for YMCA and a club team growing up. Uh, went to Holy Cross up in Worcester, Mass. Swam there for three years and then started coaching. So I coached at a couple different YMCAs, including the one that I swam at before. Coached at club teams, coached volunteer assistant in college for a year. And currently, I'm going to be a high school coach in a couple of weeks starting. So good mix of athlete and, and uh, coaching background. And then did a, uh, my undergrad in economics and statistics. So looked to get a field, a job in the field of data science and start in the finance industry and saw this opportunity with USA Swimming and thought it was a perfect match. So walk me through this, because the first time I ran into you, so we, we've met in person a few times, although it's fair to say the first few times we were just walking around circling a pool deck together. And so I didn't actually really get a chance to talk to you until you took the job with uh, USA Swimming. But you were part of starting like a, a team from scratch down in Delaware, Diamond State Aquatics, right? Yes. Yeah, I was one of the first few coaches that we brought on board uh, in June of 2020. So infamously peak COVID times. We were very fortunate to have one of the only outdoor pools around and we very quickly grew to a, a pretty reputable club and they're doing great things still there today. They've got tremendous leadership and the club's been a lot of fun, and I definitely miss working there. Yeah, just just give people context. Like I'm a, I'm always somebody. One of the reasons why I'm fascinated by stuff like club excellence is I'm always watching teams to see um, how they're doing well. And the the development of this club was so fast. I mean, I remember seeing you guys at a meet for the first time, and I didn't even realize that you weren't Delaware swim team, that you were a distinct team from Delaware. And I was thinking like, oh, isn't that cute? There's like this little dinky team down there. That was like six months before you had a summer juniors qualifier. So within two years, you from starting a club, you had people competing uh, for Diamond State Aquatics at summer juniors, just to give people sort of a frame of reference for what the development curve of that club has been. Yeah, Zach and the staff there have done a great job. They've 
produce top quality talent all the way through and the level of college commits that they've had just this past season has been astounding to watch and it was very fortunate to be a part of it. So you say the opportunity with USA Swimming, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, has the position of data scientist existed at USA Swimming prior to you working there? Great question. Uh, it is not, as you may have imagined. So this was a originally in a data analyst role and that evolved more into a data science focus as we kind of progressed technologically and, and the need and the desire evolved. And it was really fun to kind of grow into this role. So give me like give me a little more background on how that happened then. Right. Like who decided over as far as you understand, you can only answer for yourself what you know, but like who decided hey, let's get somebody to come in here and crunch a few more numbers than we've been doing. And then um, how did you find out that that was something they were looking for and sort of stick your foot in the door? Yeah, and I think you'll appreciate this. I actually applied for an internship originally. So I was working a full-time job at the time and being the big swim nerds that we are, right, I even applied for the internship and thankfully wasn't picked because I probably still would have worked the internship longer than I would have gotten this full-time role. So that was very fortunate for me. Uh, but once I didn't get the internship, they had a posting for a data analyst role and reached back out, applied. And uh, that over the year kind of evolved with, you know, as we changed technologies and, and the needs became more of a uh, kind of a content focus and producing more reporting and more analysis and more dashboards for coaches that, need kind of evolved just organically and the skills that I had, I uh, felt like a natural fit. So give me an, give me an idea. Um, I'm going to ask you a little bit about, you know, beyond the report that we're going to talk about what kind of things you do at USA swimming. Are you, are you located in Colorado Springs now? Yes, that's correct. Okay. So you're, you're, you're full time at headquarters. Um, and, what like what does a data scientist do at USA Swimming? Yeah, that's uh, a bit of a mixed bag, right? So it's definitely not the, you know, in, in a finance industry, you've got a team of 15 data scientists and each one's got, you know, they've got their, their credit or they've got their marketing models that they're working on. Here, it's more of a mixed bag. It's kind of, you know, meeting with coaches and talking about first and foremost what they want and need. So the basic functionality is those reports that you'll get from swims of, you know, top times, membership reports, that kind of thing. But now we're fortunate enough to be at the point where we can build these pretty cool and interactive dashboards. So for example, we just put out a dashboard on uh, club time progressions. So any club now in USA Swimming can go and check out their own club team's time progressions. And what I mean by that is you can take your improvement rate from last year and compare it to a national average. And you can slice and dice that by age group, competition category, events, strokes, whatever you think might provide some analysis, you've got the ability to go in and do that. So trying to provide some information along that realm, kind of similar to this article that we're going to talk about, but letting the coaches kind of drive the questions too, because the great ideas are going to come from the coach base for sure. See, this is, I've, this is why I like talking to you. Like I, I had a really good time talking to you on the pool deck because some of the stuff I go, yeah, like that's something that I have been trying to do, um, doing at various degrees, like watching those progressions. I remember I always told people, like, you want to compare, you want to see if somebody 
is progressing at a faster than average rate or an average rate or, you know, a below average rate. Like look at the, at least I, I was always referring people to look at the USA Swimming Motivational Times and like see, right, like what, what was the improvement from, you know, an A time at 14 to like an A time at 15. Like at least that would give you some idea of what's happening. But I think uh, from what I hear you just saying, this is a little bit more precise than that. And I, I like the idea of, you know, both the thing we're going to talk about, um, you are doing some analysis, but you're also, as far as I can understand it, trying to put some tools in the hands of people to do their own uh, analysis. Is that correct? Absolutely. And like you alluded to at the top, right, we've got a pretty small data team here. We've only got about three of us, really. So okay. there are 20,000 coaches in this country, and they're very creative. And given the right tools, we have seen them do great things. So that's really what we want to do. We want to, you know, kind of provide all the resources we can, but we know that we're not going to be the smartest people in the room and we're not going to have the best ideas all the time. So we want to empower the membership and, and just have conversations to create those great ideas. I'm, and not to put you on the spot here, but I, I'm just thinking live as we're, you know, talking through some of the tools that you're making available. Um, I think that probably there were a lot of coaches that were pretty upset about the rollout of the new swim system. Um, but is is the kind of stuff you're talking about, like, is that the promise of like a, that overhaul of swims that that? this stuff becomes easier and sort of more possible. 100%. And I'm glad you phrased it that way. Right. So that there was definitely some points where, you know, it was, it was ch more challenging than other times. And we're yeah. definitely at a point now that we are seeing some of the rewards of that being this dashboard reporting. We're having better information on clubs and coaches. So one of the things that we think about a lot is carrying capacity and, you know, where clubs at versus where facilities at. So, we never had truly reliable facilities data up until new swims 3.0. So now that we can visualize in a U.S. map of, okay, here's all of our pools. Here's how many average swimmers we have training at these pools. Where are there opportunities for growth? Where are we kind of overcrowded at? And we can start to kind of visualize some of that stuff as well. Oh, this is, so to explain to me carrying capacity. This is, this is something you can measure now. What does that mean? Yeah, so a, a little bit off topic, but we never really could tell, you know, if we had all the clubs, we have their addresses, right? And we could visualize a U.S. map, like a heat map, per se, of where clubs sure. and, and members are located. We never before could overlay where the actual pools that they were training at were. So we couldn't say, okay, we've got no pool within 20 miles of this metropolitan area. Maybe that's something we should look at talking to that municipality or investing in, or maybe we've got three pools in this municipality, but there's no clubs within 20 miles, then that's probably a good opportunity for a club to be formed. So what can we do to kind of make that happen and make swimming a piece of that market as well? Okay. Yeah. Really cool. Okay. Enough delay. Let's, let's get into this report. So I, I think like right into the introduction, you get to some questions that I've always asked, and I would I will be fair with you that the genesis of me being curious about this report is I have been on this podcast a number of times making the assertion that club size is extremely important in terms of 
reaching club excellence. Now, I would say after reading your report, um, we probably agree more than we disagree, but I think there's a lot more nuance to it, right? Once you actually um, dig in on this. So, so you, I mean, you sort of basically asked the question, which is like, what actually matters in terms of club excellence? If we go behind that, um, and you, you referenced earlier that some of the stuff that you guys are doing, it's comes out of like, you're, you're trying to figure out what do people want to know? Walk me through, like, how did, how did you guys figure out this is something that we really, that people, coaches, membership want to know? Yeah, great question. And this is something that, um, about a year ago, I started trying to write these data articles for the website. So I was trying to originally put out one maybe every two months or so just to have some kind of regular different content on our website. And as a result, um, we've been talking to coaches and we get a question a lot, like you mentioned, is, you know, what separates the gold from the silver level clubs? What separates a silver medal club from a bronze medal club? And this seemed like the perfect avenue to kind of get that information out and do the deep dive. Um, and club size is another big piece of that, right? That's something that people like yourself and people like me too, it's, it just makes complete sense that, you know, there's probably a linear relationship between club size and club excellence points, which there is, but how do we kind of weight that and, and give some credence to smaller clubs that are, you know, still performing at a high level. So what can we kind of dispel about club excellence or explain a little deeper about what actually goes into it? If you were to summarize for people listening, when you started to dig in on this, what what was perhaps the most surprising thing you found out about club excellence? Yeah, I would say so in the kind of at the top of the article, there's some summary statistics about um, gold, silver and bronze level clubs. Yeah, I would say that the biggest surprise for me was how consistent some of them were. The ones that I'm specifically talking about here are things like retention rate uh, and the improvement rate, uh, namely. So. Right, because these are, sorry, I just want to interrupt you. These are medians, like the data that you're presenting is medians. And just for everybody who, you know, uh, it's been a long time for many of us since middle school math, that means this is like the most frequently occurring data point in what you're looking, right? Versus a mean where you just take everything and combine it and divide it by the number of um, data points. Totally. And that goes to, you know, we do have some rather large clubs in USA Swimming, so that kind of big number and that average would heavily skew it. So that was right. something that we wanted to try to mitigate with that. So when you say um, consistency in terms of uh, retention rate, right, like I'm just looking at the data here. It's actually pretty interesting. I, I did I, Until we had this conversation, I didn't realize that um, bronze medal clubs actually have a higher median retention rate than gold medal clubs in your data. So that is kind of surprising. Um, what do you, what, give me a peek behind like that retention rate. What, how do you calculate that? Yeah. And this is something that along lines of the time progressions dashboard that we mentioned a couple minutes ago, we're going to have soon a retention dashboard where clubs can actually have access to their own information and measure their retention rates 
compared to a national average, compared to clubs of a similar size, compared to clubs in their LSC, whatever it may be, uh, that they want to slice and dice and help them become kind of more business savvy people. But in terms of this retention rate, we're looking at just how many members you had last year, how many members you have this year, what kind of, it's almost like a renewal rate essentially. So it's not a true one-to-one retention rate, but the renewal rate kind of gives us the information we needed here too. So this is, if, if I make sure I understand you correctly, this is, we look at who was on a team in 2022 and then you compare that to the list of who re-registered in 2023. This is the percentage of the people that were the same as the Correct. previous year. So it doesn't take into account, like obviously gold medal clubs aren't losing on average 20% of their membership every year. It's just that they have twenty, almost 20% of their membership not returning on any given year. And that includes, right, kids that are like graduating out of a team, Right. Bingo. Being the largest percent of that, for sure. And that's actually, that. now that I, I talked that through for a second, I wonder if, you know, uh, some of these higher achieving clubs, whether they disproportionately have more people finish right at the end so that they're always sort of moving a big group of people um, outside of their club. It'd be really interesting uh, to to see more on that. Um, yeah. I'd what? actually say that that's true, probably, given that, okay. you know, we're looking at a, this is summer juniors cuts, right? So the majority of those kids are going to be the older ones, and the majority of the older ones are probably going to be the 18-year-olds. So that, that makes sense to me, surface level. So you get, you present that, like, summary of data, and then you get into the question that, of course, like, I'm really curious about, and I think a lot of people that are reading this are curious about, like, okay, so, like, how much of a factor actually is club size? And I, I want to, um, you do a good job, I think, explaining some of these terms at the bottom of the article, but, you know, part of the nice thing about a podcast is we have so much more space, probably, than you had to write this article, so we can we can explain things in in greater depth. So um, in presenting, you know, the relationship between club size, um, you use something known as an R value. Explain to people who are listening to this, when you say that the R value uh, correlation between club size and club excellent is 0.42, what does that mean? Yeah, this is uh, definitely a little mathy, so apologies for, in advance. But No, uh, but everybody should learn math, right, Corey? <laughs> that's right. We, I mean, we're coaches, right? We love math. We look at numbers yeah. all day. So Yeah. Uh, yeah, so that correlation value is, is between negative one and one. So this is something that measures an association of two different variables. Now, something that may make sense to some of the listeners is, you know, if you've got um, every time you swim the 100 fly, you go best time. So one time you swim the 100 fly, one best time. Two times, two best times. If you continue that trend every time you swim the 100 fly for 10, 20, 30 times, you're going to have a perfect correlation between your best time percentage and your number of times swam the 100 fly. So every time X happens, we know for a fact 100% that Y is also going to happen. So that's a perfect positive. So that's a, a an R value of one. This okay. R value of 0. 0.42 
little bit weaker, right? So we're saying that generally as X increases, Y will also increase, but at a lower rate. And it's more variable, shall we say. So we're saying that if you add more club, more swimmers to your club, your club excellence points are likely to increase, but it is not by any means a guarantee or a given. Yeah, so I, I'm going to ask a question about this. It's been a long time. I mean, I I, um, I got a master's in applied positive psychology. And one of the things I did in that was actually I did like board approved research. So, you know, when you do research, like you've got to uh, crunch numbers like this at the end, but it's been 15 years, Corey. So you'll, you'll <laughs> forgive me if I feel like I understand our values, but like I don't because I think to the extent that uh, we were trying to include it in in research back in those days, I mean, this is a off debated thing in social sciences. We were trying to um, we were we were trying to get that you know confidence interval, I believe, like up to ninety five percent, so that we could say that like it, we were very certain that you know X correlated uh, to Y, right? Um, one of the ways I understand our value and maybe, um, maybe you'll agree, maybe you won't, I'm be curious to find out is sort of like when we look at how big a club is, if, if this correlation, our value is 0.42, we're like 42% sure that it's the club size that's making, uh, the team be that good in club excellence. Is that a correct understanding or am I fudging math with that? No, it's definitely a big piece of it. So okay. to the end of the article, and this is kind of where we can suss out a little bit more of the um, relationship for each variable to the given uh, metric that we're looking to compare to, this point being club excellence points. We can say that, yes, kind of in, an, in a vacuum that we're 42% for each increase in club size 42 percent can be attributed to that um or sorry for each in increase in club excellence points 42 percent could be attributed to club size growth now when we get down to the bottom and we'll probably talk about this a little bit later but we used a couple different linear models and mixed uh, mixed effect models so what that is is we're trying to instead of just looking at that vacuum of that r value we're trying to take into account all the different variables that may go into this, for example, number of coaches, number of long course meets, those kind of things that maybe are kind of hidden in just the standalone R value. But once we pair it with other variables that we think are important, the relationships become more apparent. Okay. So, I mean, like, uh, I want to talk about some of the stuff you've broken out as a good move into that. Um, but even within this club size, um, you, you, you have this piece where you examine correlations within each metal grouping. And I just want to make sure I understand what you mean by this, right? So the cumulative correlation value is 0.42. But like you have in here, for instance, um, when you just take gold medal clubs, that number drops to 0.06. Explain to me <laughs> what happened there. Totally. So one caveat at the top there. So there only are 
20 gold medal clubs a year. So small so you have a very much smaller data set, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yep. So that's definitely one thing to hit at the top. But the variability, and just looking at the scatter chart here, the variability between club excellence points just among those gold medal clubs is anywhere from right around 30,000 all the way up to close to 90,000. So wow. zero to 90,000 is the entire range of club excellence points. And two thirds of that is just in the gold medal clubs. So with yeah. that kind of huge spread, 20 data points, and then every gold medal club, we've got clubs that are just under 100 swimmers being the smallest one, and clubs that are over 2,000 swimmers being the largest one. The spread on both of those variables is just so large that we don't really see any kind of strong association between club size and club excellence points just isolated out with gold medal clubs. Right. So on any, so basically on any given year, once you get up to that, that level to be in the top 20 uh, clubs, it, it's probably the case that um, the size of your team is not necessarily different. I actually think once you've started collecting this stuff, it would be really interesting you know, uh, not to, that this will probably be the last point I make about club size, but it'd be really interesting for me to see how much easier it is to like be a podium club, right. Or remain in, uh, in that gold medal, uh, tier in relation to how big your team is, because my perception, again, this is not, I've not actually looked at the numbers. My, my perception with the smaller clubs that, make it into gold medal is that they'll have an exceptional year and and a, a handful of exceptional swimmers on their team and they can maybe bust in there but they're not likely to stay in that and there'll be another a different a distinct club from them you know that'll be the sort of uh I don't want to say lucky because I think they're doing a great job to get up there if you're if you're if you as you say like if you're under 100 and you're in gold medal like you've obviously done a lot of things really, really well um, on the performance end. So, um, but I, but I think there's there's probably more of those teams ducking in and out, right? And and versus sort of remaining up there. So I'd be really curious to see how influential uh, the the size of your team is in terms of staying power up at uh, each of these levels. Without a doubt, yeah, I think that's certain certainly something that. It's going to be easier to remain there once you've got such a large pool of athletes to pick from. Kind of the American mm -hmm. model, right? You know, some are going to rise to the top, and the more that you've got, the better chances you have. So I do think that there's some truth in that. That's not data-driven currently, but I'm sure that, you know, we would find some kind of positive relationship between that. So you, you identified a few things that actually, uh, in your data set, had a higher correlation with club excellence. Um, and I want to ask you about these. The first one is number of number of coaches, and it's pretty stark when you look at this. Now, obviously, um, part of this has to do with proportionality, right? So, you know, like uh, bronze medal clubs, it's an average of thirteen coaches, um, and gold we get up to twenty nine and a half. But that tracks pretty closely to the like pretty similar ratios in terms of uh, swimmers. How do you guys count 
who is a coach? Is that just like registrations within that club um, of somebody as a coach on their team? Correct. Yep. That's exactly how we track it. Just anyone that registers as a coach member for that team for that season. Because the number seems like astoundingly high. I mean, uh, but I but I think, you know, uh, like having recently been uh, worked on a a coaching staff um, of a of a team around 300 members that was gold medal in in 22 and silver medal in in 23. Initially, I look at this and I go, well, we had nowhere near 16 coaches. But then when I start to think about, you know, like the, the, the people that were there once or twice a week, I start to lose confidence um, in that number. Um, another thing that you had on here was number of meets and then most importantly, number of long course meets. Um, and this is another figure that I'm astounded by. So I'm hoping you can actually explain this to me because it says on here, gold medal clubs, the median number of long course meters meets was 27. How could it, like, I can't imagine any team doing 27 meets period in the course of a year, not much less 27 long course meets. So how did, how did, how do teams get up to that number or how is that being counted? Help me understand that. Yeah, this is one that we've gotten a couple questions on. So the way that we counted this was if any singular one of your swimmers entered a meet, we counted it. So okay. you could have maybe maybe you're sending your 12-year-old, your 12 and under group to a long course meet in mid-May. Maybe the next weekend, the 13 over group is going to a different one, two different meets. Maybe you've got a kid that makes an all-star team. That counts as a meet. Send two Maybe your LSC your has swim. three different long course championship meets or four or five long course championship meets. Right. Exactly. Okay. That starts to make a little bit more sense <laughs> to me. Um, so I'm going to ask you to even sort of extrapolate here because number of long course meets was the, um, in terms of what you guys looked at, uh, had the, the highest correlation put your coach hat take your data scientist hat off and put your coach hat on for a second what do you think's going on there yeah that's a great question and i do like to to kind of switch between the two um i think you know especially when kids start in the sport and i'll draw on a little bit of my own athlete experience here long course was hard it was scary right it was something that was super new it was foreign you only saw it on TV once every four years until you got to the age of 14 or 15 and you just weren't exposed to it. And I know growing up, our club had rules about who could even swim long course season. So it was something that was never really integrated into kind of the normal trajectory of a swimmer or something that we had regular exposure to. So if you're looking at a program that measures success or performance strictly on long course achievements, I think it makes a ton of sense that, you know, the more repetitions you have somewhere, the more experience you have doing something, the better off you're going to be at it long term and be able to handle those kind of moments. And, you know, if you're swimming the 200 free, you know, OK, I got to really kill the legs when I hit the 150 or the 175. But if you're swimming the 200 free long course, that's a completely different race. So just knowing the difference and kind of how to prepare and execute those races, I think the more cracks you've got at a long course makes a huge difference. Right. I mean, I guess that is, in, in some ways, it's not surprising, right? Because 
club excellence is built entirely off of long course results. And if you're just not even trying long course, you know, or, or the majority of your team's not trying long course, you know, such that you, um, end up with a lot of competitions, it's not impossible, but it becomes much, much harder, right. For things to, uh, progress at that level. And like, you know, again, you think like the minimum sort of standard for scoring some points in club excellence, um, is getting to the summer junior championship level. Um, again, you're going to have to swim probably a lot of other long course meets. Uh, I, I would be very curious to see like every, uh, summer juniors qualifier on average, how many long course meets does it take them in their swimming career before they get there? I bet it would be quite a few. Um, and so, you know, if you're simply not getting reps at that level, it becomes, uh, very, very challenging to even be there and, and, to to get any points. Without a doubt. Yeah. I think the mindset goes very quickly, uh, from, Hey, I finished the 200 fly long course to, Hey, I made the sectionals cut or, Hey, I made the LSE championship cut in 200 fly. So there's definitely levels to it. And it takes a while to, uh, to kind of progress through that. What else would you, you know, like if, if I was your buddy and I called you up and I go like, Corey, this is so cool. You got all the cool data. Like, what would you, what would you advise me? And I'm like, I want to, you know, I I want my club to be great in club excellence. What would you advise me is sort of low hanging fruit for a lot of teams in terms of improving their performance along these lines? Yeah. And this is one that I was really happy to find, honestly. And this is not biased. I promise this is actual (laughs) facts. Um, (laughs) But once we took uh, the club size and the number of long course meets and started factoring in the number of other variables that we looked at, the one that really popped was the years of coaching experience. So once we already controlled and kind of took out the effect of club size and number of long course meets, we found that the as the average years of experience that your coaching staff as a whole had, your club excellence score also increased. And we found a 95% confident relationship with that variable. So we were super excited. to People see are listening to the audio version. My eyes just went extremely wide at that news. <laughs> exactly. So the low hanging fruit there, I think is, you know, invest in your coaches. You know, if you've got whatever kind of club that you're running, make sure that you can continue to invest and grow in your coaches, whether that be from professional development, uh, education, just more resources, covering trainings, um, attending conferences, talking to other coaches, whatever you can kind of do to, to keep your coaches engaged and interested and on your staff, the better your results are going to be. Yeah. I mean, and you're, you're stepping into something that, um, you know, I don't, I don't know that you're a listener of the podcast, but something we've talked about a lot here. I mean, I do think, um, one of the reasons why my eyes went really wide is when I look around the country um, at people that I think are really, really good coaches and are experienced, um, the type of people that, you know, like if I hear your answer, right, like you would advise people to find and retain, retain within wherever they are. Um, I'm kind of worried, honestly, that, that a lot of those people are either already out 
of the sport or they're looking for a way out. I mean, um, I am, I am shocked by how many really, really talented coaches, people that are passionate about the sport of swimming that seem to be hanging on by a, a thread. Um, and I, I do think that there is some stuff and this is not, uh, this is not me getting on my soapbox that it's necessarily USA swimming's problem to solve. Um, but probably at the same time, people there should be interested in it um, because because it's it's really important um, to the experience that everybody has in the the, the sport of swimming that 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 these people who um, you know are just are just passionate coaches and again I bring my own bias to it right because I I was a year ago I was in a club uh, working coaching and now I'm not right and um, uh, so I obviously made my own my own choice in terms of where I was going to try and contribute uh, within the, within the sport. And, um, but I, but I, from a purely subjective point of view, I couldn't agree more um, at how important that is. Yeah. And I'll even bring some of my own experience too. Very similar to, you know, what you just mentioned. I was coaching at Diamond State, made the move out here, took a job here. I'm not coaching in the club anymore. And that wasn't really any reason other than just move and, you know, new job, wanted to settle in and such. And didn't really have the opportunity with the work travel schedule to consistently commit at the level that I'd want to. But um, you're right. I mean, there's people that are working two jobs. There's head coaches that are working two jobs. Like at Diamond State alone, our head coach uh, was working a full-time engineering job and the full-time head coach of a brand new program. So the amount of hours and stress that go into that are just absurd. And thankfully he was able to move just to be the full-time head coach. And that's a good example of kind of investing in and retaining your coaches. And that's someone that we want to keep in the sport. That's someone that is going to continue to grow. And um, I, I couldn't agree more. I think that that's, you know, such a huge benefit to, to coaches that want to stay in. Yeah. So what's next? Um, I mean, what you, you, you previewed some of the things that are going to be available on the website. So I realized like I'm, I'm going like, and what else? And what else? You know, like asking you to uh, uh, pile on here. But um, what, what other stuff are you maybe starting to investigate now um, that could be, we could be a ways off from hearing more about it? Um, what, if anything, are you looking at, like there's trials in, in four months? Is there anything, uh, being, uh, any, any numbers being cracked by the, uh, uh, data science team, uh, with regards to that? Like what, what's, what's upcoming? Yeah, I will. Uh, well, thanks for asking this one. Cause I've been sitting on this for a little bit. I've got okay. um, one project that I'm super excited about that we piloted last year to a small group of clubs and, is open to everyone this year is this national practice data project that we have. I don't know if you've heard of this. No. Okay. I would love to hear more about it. (laughs) Yeah. So essentially what we did last year was we had a focus group of a couple of different coaches, maybe 15 to 20. And we thought that it'd be really neat to conduct these almost test sets in a way, but we put out three different sets that were pretty mild, pretty kind of cut and dry from something that we hope or think that most clubs are doing. And those are just the two, the three sets were 10 fifties, uh, best average on a minute, any stroke, just make it consistent throughout the 10, um, eight, one hundreds flutter kick 
and then six 200s free on about 20 seconds rest. And we administered these sets and said, hey, if you can do these with your athletes, send us back the times, do that three times a year. We will track the progress for you and we'll put it into this really nice and cool dashboard where you can see your athlete's progression, not only within the year, but also compare it to their lifetime best time, to their season best time and see, okay, if my kid's kicking at a 147 100 flutter kick and they're going to 113 100 free, you know, those numbers are off. But um, what's kind of that relationship right. to where they need to be to reach like... You know, who if that 11 year old girl that's trying to break them in in the 100 free, what does she need to hold in eight 100s flutter kick to get there? Those are the kind of questions that we wanted to answer. And now that we've got uh, two years worth of data on that, uh, I would look for another similar article just like this one, kind of diving into the relationships of those practice times and, and comparing that to performance times. Nice. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Um, very exciting. And anything, anything upcoming with regards to Olympic trials that you're going to be looking at? Yeah. So we're super excited. Um, on the data front, nothing pressing at the moment. Um, I'm sure that we'll, we'll shift gears and we'll definitely amp up and get some cool content out there for trials that we're, you know, super excited to have. Um, so yeah, just keep an eye on those coming out. Yeah, I'll be really, I mean, I, I, like I, now that I have you on here, I can just pitch all my ideas to you, right? So um, <laughs> I guess I'm going to be works, really right? curious. <laughs> uh, I saw that, uh, you know, that there are 700, between 700 and 800 Olympic trials qualifiers um, currently. And um, I'm really like, I've had a bunch of arguments with other people at where that number is going to end up. I... I am, a, I think, on the aggressive end of it. I do think that there probably will be more than a thousand swimmers that qualify for Olympic trials. Um, and I've based that on sort of just looking back at previous times, you know, how many qualifiers there were at this point uh, out and sort of guesstimating how many more there will be. I've heard from a lot of people that say, oh, my gosh, the cuts are so hard now, like they couldn't possibly there, there, there aren't you know, 250 more people, um, that are going to make it, uh, for the meet. So I, I will be, I would be really curious to see, um, some, some analysis of, you know, like first, I mean, like how many people USA swimming is trying to get at Olympic trials? Like what's the actual goal for how big they want to meet like that to be, how big they want a summer juniors to be, et cetera, et cetera. And then, you know, there's, there's gotta be some science, uh, behind where, where you actually put the cut times to sort of create that. Right. And like, it feels as if we always just keep, um, making cut times harder and harder and people go like, oh my gosh, they're so hard now. And then tons of people qualify for these meets anyway. So, um, I'll be really curious to, uh, to see some of that stuff. Yeah. That's the beauty of the sport, right? So you set a goal and athletes and coaches are going to aim for it and they're going to hit it, right? We've seen it time and time again. And to your point about, you know, some of the science that goes into that, um, we do, uh, our data team, Patrick Murphy did a really good job with the modeling that actually goes into the trial standards. So okay. pretty pure data science. We actually did do a, um, a, a machine learning model to use to, to help those time predictions um, based on a lot of the factors that you mentioned, you know, number of qualifiers that we want and 
what the venue can hold and what the deck space is and all those kind of factors that go into it. But ultimately, it is the decision of our committees here that are made up of a bunch of coaches. So we right. present the information that we go back and forth. They make really good suggestions. We make some tweaks. And then every other standard is kind of set off of those top level standards. So trials and then kind of a trickle down effect from there. You work backwards to the, to the other national level meets, juniors, futures, et cetera. Well, really cool. Corey, um, anything else you, you want to talk about or, or, or before I uh, bring us to a close here? I think this has been great. I had a ton of fun doing this. I'm glad that you reached out, glad that you read the article. And I just say, look out for more content like this. And if anyone's got questions or thoughts or ideas, they can feel free to shoot me an email. Yeah, your, your email is at the bottom of the article. I'll link to it um, when I put this podcast up. And um, yeah, I think I'll probably have you back on if you if you publish another thing that piques my interest. Uh, I will definitely reach out and invite you again. Uh, thank you to everybody for listening. If you want to reach out and contact me, you can email swimbriefpodcast at gmail.com. Um, you can uh, go to christycoach.com. You can go to christy underscore coach on Instagram and uh, any of those places. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you once again, Corey, for coming, and I'll see you guys later this week.